There are three major categories for the misuse of scripture that I that I can think of off the top of my head. One is scripture is used to justify abusive behavior. Justifying abusive behavior, minimizing the abused person, and then criticizing how the abused feel about abuse and how they responded to the abuse. Like, like if, if a person's abused, they might say something to someone else. And they, the, the criticism is, well, you know, you're not supposed to gossip, right? You're supposed to go to the authority of the church. You have to go to that person first and then go to the church and then maybe you can go to the police. So there's a misuse of control. So justifying abusive behavior, minimizing the abused, and then criticizing how the abused or those that support them have responded. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, mental health, and wellness, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from your clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. This podcast episode is brought to you by UHSM HealthShare, a unique healthcare membership on a mission to create holistic wellness for the mind, body, and spirit. I'm honored to partner with UHSM and its community of faithful members. Together, we plan to create more awareness and programs around mental health and the role it plays in our overall balanced health. If you or someone you know is frustrated with their current health care, I encourage you to inquire about membership options at www.uhsm.com. Hey friend, I have a new episode for you, and today we're talking all about hope and healing for addressing spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Yes, we are going there, and this is just one of, I think, many conversations we're going to have on this topic throughout the year, throughout the podcast. We've talked about this before with Dr. Diane Langberg. Definitely check out my conversation with her around spiritual abuse in the church. You know, this is something that is not only near and dear to my heart, but also something that many of you have professed as something that you want to talk about, that you want to learn more about, or that you have been through personally and just want to give language to that experience and understanding as well as how to respond to these situations when they are so close to you. And who better to have this conversation with than Justin Holcomb? Justin is an award-winning author, professor, and priest who's written or edited 20 books on abuse theology and biblical studies. So this is really um, Justin's expertise in this intersection of both his personal experience and his theological experience and professional experience, which he shares more about. Justin teaches theology and apologetics at Reformed Theological Seminary and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's an Episcopal priest and serves as the canon for vocations in the Diocese of Central Florida. Justin graduated from Southern University with a bachelor's in biblical studies. He obtained a master's in theological studies and a master's in Christian thought from Reformed Theological Seminary. He also studied at the University of Oxford and earned his PhD from Emory University in theological studies with a concentration in comparative religious studies. Justin and his wife Lindsay live in Orlando, Florida with their two daughters. Saying all that to say, Justin has a wide experience when it comes to the topic of abuse, addressing it directly, but also providing a biblical response. In this conversation, we talk about some of the signs and and traits 
that make a church community vulnerable to abuse or even to enable these situations, how scripture gets mishandled in situations of abuse, and the proper use and application of scripture to help foster healing and accountability, encouragement for those who have been in a toxic or abusive situation and are struggling to integrate back into a faith community. You know, no matter where you are in your faith journey or, you know, where you've landed from your experience, I just want you to know that this is a safe space and that you are welcome here. And these are the conversations that we invite with open honesty, with love and grace and compassion, as well as accountability. There are so many dynamics and layers to this conversation that you don't want to miss. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Justin. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. So glad you could join us for today's episode. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Um, it's something that we've talked a little bit about before on the podcast, and that's the topic of you know hope and healing for addressing spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Um, I've spoken about this on Instagram, online, and have gotten just an overwhelming response, uh, which tells me that this is something that we need to talk about more. It's a sensitive, but it's a necessary conversation. And I'm so excited for today's guest. We have Justin Holcomb here today to talk a little bit about that with us. This is something, this is an area that he works in, that he's written about and read about extensively. Um, So we're so grateful to have him here today. Hi, Justin. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. I love the fact that there's a whole group of people with you leading the conversation on hope and healing for trauma and abuse. Uh, Thrilled to be talking to you and uh, see what we can explore that would bring some uh, healing and hope to a lot of people. Absolutely. That is the whole point of this. And I was was sharing this online like a week ago. I was saying, you know, talking about abuse or spiritual abuse in the church is not anti-church. It's because I care about the church, because we care about the people in the church. That is why we speak on it, to protect those, right? Um, you're like, yes, preaching to the choir. Well, I, mean, like I have daughters, mm-hmm. and uh, if I am dealing with a behavior or uh, a, a physical situation of sickness with my daughters, uh, bringing them to the doctor or addressing a behavior that hurts them and other people is not anti-daughter, it's very pro-daughter. And so uh, it's a simplistic, now, uh, it's a simplistic dismissal of addressing the issue to be like, oh, you're anti-church. It's like, no, that's part of the abusive structure that would actually dismiss the conversation. So we're already diving into it. But but yeah, it's not anti if Jesus died, I mean, if you look at how Jesus talks about the church, um, there are the body of Christ, the bride, the people of God, and the building of God, and he cleans and nourishes, provides, protects the church. Jesus seems to care about the church ton, and it's his church, and he builds it. Uh, it's not the narcissistic celebrity pastor who needs people to buy their books and give them a bunch of money. It's Jesus who died and rose again. He cares about the church. And so, and who are the people he cared for? He cared a lot about the oppressed and vulnerable, just like his father did, just like Yahweh in the Old Testament. Like yeah. God's point and focus is on those people. So it's uh, it's actually to miss 
the mark to claim that this conversation is somehow anti-church. Has it been anti-church before? Sure, there's a way of doing this in an anti-church way. Um, doesn't have to be just by bringing it up. Though. Right. There's a spectrum I've noticed, you know, um, there are those who, you know, completely leave the faith and they're very anti-church when it comes to experiences they've had. There are those who have just had um, adverse experiences or toxic experiences in church and it's landed them in a place of kind of a faith crisis where it's like, I still believe in God and I still believe in scripture. However, I am having a hard time integrating my community, my faith community experience again, after what I've been through, you know, and then like you said, there are those who are just kind of like dismissive about it. Let's not say anything bad about the church. We need to show a united front, but it's like at what cost, at the cost of losing the individuals, right? I, I don't believe that God is a God, and we see this through scripture, where he dismisses the individual for the structure, you know? Exactly. And <laughs> And the idea that God needs us to defend his church and namesake is ridiculous. It's a little overinflated. If Jesus died for, cares for, builds, and nourishes his church, he can handle it. And, I mean, going back to my daughters and any relationship, but with my wife and daughters, there are times when I know I've sinned in the way I've responded with either shame or impatience um, even my shamey look, which I kind of just did a little micro shame there for that, that, that face. Um, and that moment where I can dig in my heels cause my daughter's 11 and I can, I can win that argument about, Hey, you don't talk back to me. Like I can do that. But when I have a moment of clarity and go, Hey, I'm sorry. I said, will you forgive me? Like I actually win credibility. I, I, I foster the relationship out of humility and repentance. It's way more fruitful. If, if church leaders had this awareness that transparency and humility yeah. and saying I'm sorry and taking responsibility when there's been an oversight or a sin or right. instead of cover up, like the, the impulse to cover up and hide and minimize loses credibility and integrity. Mm -hmm. The very thing that is hard to do is transparency and honesty and taking responsibility is where you actually gain credibility and integrity and you actually, people will respect you more. So it's almost like many churches are shooting themselves in the foot out of their defensive posture of fear as opposed to walking in the light and doing what Jesus told the church to do. It seems like obvious, right? But it's like, here we are having these conversations. And yeah, I love what you're saying about transparency. I think that's such a key word. Transparency is a relationship builder. And I know we've already dove right into the conversation, but just to backtrack for a second here, for those who aren't familiar with you and really the just extensive work that you've done in this area of, of, of abuse in church and also theology and biblical studies. Can you let us know a little bit more about yourself and what led to the work that you're doing today? What made you so passionate about specifically going into this area? Yeah, uh, there's really three levels of or dimensions of it, personal, pastoral, and professional. So personally, um, I uh, experienced sexual abuse when I was a kid by a distant family member. And so I, I know from my experience some of the other effects of what that's like. Um, so that's one. My, my wife, uh, uh, she grew up in a home where her dad was verbally, emotionally, psychologically unhealthy. 
um, abusive, I'm fine with the language. She would use that language. And so when I met my wife, uh, who, when we were dating, I was a seminary professor and teaching at University of Virginia. And she was, um, she was a case manager for a domestic abuse shelter. And then after we got married, she was a case manager for a sexual assault crisis center. So our worlds kind of came together where I'm training future pastors and, you know, just being a professor. And then professionally, uh, she has a master's in public health and specifically violence against women. And professionally, her work with being case manager, pastorally, I'm, de- I'm a minister. I'm an, I've been ordained as a, a minister in the Episcopal Church for 16, 17 years. And so I'm dealing with uh, the effects of the sin of abuse and, and the crime of abuse and working through that pastorally with people. So personally, I've experienced it. My wife experienced it. Pastorally, I'm a minister and I'm trained future ministers when I teach in seminary and professionally as authors on this and her, especially her on the professional side with what she's done as a survivor advocate. And then we've written some books on this. Uh, the first one was Rid of My Disgrace, which is Hope and Healing for Sexual Assault Survivors. A bunch of ministers and friends said, hey, we need something on domestic abuse. We give people rid of my disgrace, but it's about sexual abuse, which is connected to intimate partner abuse. So we wrote, is it my fault for intimate partner abuse, domestic abuse, or domestic violence? And then after that, we wanted to get on the prevention side of things, and we worked on a a children's book. did a children's book called God Made All of Me, which is child sexual abuse prevention. Um, And we've, we've done some conferences with Rachel Den Hollander and, you know, other Boz Chavidjan, other people who are Diane Langberg. Uh, we just brought Diane Langberg into the diocese where I serve. Yes. To talk about we love her. Dallas. We had her here as well. She's phenom- definitely pioneer, yeah. pioneer in this area. Yeah. yeah. I've been on the board of Grace for yes. 12 years, I think, which is godly response to abuse in Christian environments. And Last, I, I, I teach a class called Abuse in the Church. My wife is a guest lecturer. Lindsay's her name. And I've done that at Reformed Theological Seminary, Westminster Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I'm supposed to teach it at Neshota House Theological. So a bunch of seminary places are teaching this course. I walked in the first time I taught it at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. I thought I'd have like five students, and there were 70. Mm, and I thought, so I just walked in lying because I'm thinking, wait a second, we've crossed a threshold where everyone wants to know more about this or a vast majority want to know more about this. So that's, that's the background on me with education, ministry and book stuff. Just a little bit. You've just done a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, We're passionate about, so it makes it easier. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, I always love asking this because a lot of those who I know who go into this work around abuse, mental health, and, and and even specifically in the church, there usually is some experience that is tied around it where it's kind of this not on my watch. Is this going to happen again? You know, and there's this real passion behind it. And, and that's so encouraging, you know, to hear that this work is being done and that it's being taught in seminary, you know, um, and so that being said, I'm I'm going to ask a big question. I'm just going to, what's that? Can I, can I go back to something real quick? Oh, yeah, please. As, yeah, just because uh, this is incorrect. Like I, I work for a bishop in the Episcopal Church, and we have 85 churches. He oversees them as a chief pastor. But I get to 
I mean, that's it. I get to work with all of the future clergy and people that come in and make sure they have all the training. And there is like a not on my watch. There was a minister who's no longer a minister because he violated sexual misconduct, clergy sexual misconduct. And I don't like uh, being a part of deposing them, but like Ezekiel 34 is real. Like don't like there are the shepherds who butcher the sheep and you're not going to do that under my watch if I can help it. And the fact that our kids' book, uh, God Made All of Me, we just got uh, we just got an award a few weeks ago for it reaching over a hundred thousand copies. It sold hundred and twenty five thousand copies. Like I got that, and my wife and I just started crying, thinking, if oh. every book's two kids, that's like a quarter million kids that, if not more, yeah. that have a context for um, you know s- sneaky people and. They're allowed to say no about their body and yeah. body awareness stuff. Like that's the fulfilling stuff. So yeah, absolutely. That's oh that's, my god. That's what it's all about. That is not on our watch. We can there. Yeah, and the more so. I have these conversations, it's just like there. Are, I believe are some basic trainings that should be in place when it comes to the church, specifically because. The church is in, you know, every city and communities all over. It is a hub for communities that people come through, you know, and we know that when people have mental health challenges or in psychological distress, they'll go to their church before they go to a therapist, what have you, you know, and so... Yeah, obviously, the purpose of the church is to preach and teach the gospel and to make people, you know, spiritually equipped and what have you. But that also includes mental and emotional maturity. And so I do think things like training around abuse and awareness and prevention, training around mental health prevention, like these, I think, should be a part of the church because you are dealing with people and these are real issues and we need practical solutions. So I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify, and you can apply for financial aid during the sign-up 
process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That being said, (laughs) that being said, okay, um, I think the big question is, and okay, I think the big question is how does this happen, right? How does abuse happen? So I'm broad stroking. Like what are some of the common traits and signs that make a church community vulnerable to misabuse or even enable these situations to continue um, when it's taking place? Like what are some common things you see taking place that kind of prime a church to be vulnerable to these situations? Great question. First on church, uh, uh, Carol Adams did some research. She she did a book early on about domestic abuse. It was actually called wife battering. It was so long ago that domestic abuse was called wife battering. So she wrote a book in like the eighties on this. In the research, she noticed that they asked, "Who did you think would be the most helpful in dealing with abuse?" And church was at the top of the list, and then therapists were second. Police officers were really low down, and then who was actually the most helpful? Therapists, police officers are very high because they actually engage abuse situations a lot. So they actually know how to defuse for the most part. And church was last after other um, because the church is not either the church is a great place or they're or uh, a horrible place. And so that's just set the tone. So why does this happen? First, and I'm not trying to be cute, is because of the fall, because of sin. What happens in the fall is we're supposed to love God and worship God and love our neighbor. So vertical and horizontal. And so, and what happens in the fall when sin intrudes in the world and shalom is vandalized, because you're like, we're in perfect relationship with God, with our neighbor and with ourselves and our place in the world with God and neighbor and with myself. What sin does is it intrudes, it vandalizes shalom. It turns, it turns worship of God into idolatry. And it turns love for neighbor neighbor into exploitation. The other is now a problem. And you see that in Genesis 4. What's the first thing after the fall? Is I bad worship and killing of a brother. And so sin, the effects of sin is bad worship with God. What did uh, what did Cain do? Cain brought brought his, you know, brought his leftovers to worship. And what happened was he felt minimized. So he's he's already in a disordered relationship with himself and God. And that guy, my brother, who worshiped God properly, he's the problem. So I'm going to take care of that. And the rest of the Bible is an unfolding of this growing of violence and exploitation. Uh, One Old Testament commentator referred to the Old Testament as a catalog of cruelty. Not the whole Old Testament, but that trajectory. Because what is God doing the whole time? He's restoring. He's forgiving. He's calling them out. This is sin. Do not do this. And so... I'm not doing an Old Testament versus New Testament thing by saying it's a catalog of cruelty. It's just there's there is sexual abuse, there's 
uh, genocide. There's there's all these things, and it's the Bible's way of saying this is what happens. Sin just keeps on growing and getting worse. So sin is the big problem. Now what happens is is when we have an uh, if we have a naive view of sin. Of all people, Christians should be the ones that kind of go, yeah, we have a category for this. We're not surprised by sin. Too often we're naive and we're like, we act like people inside the church don't have a sin problem anymore because we're new. We're new. We're genuinely new. We're just not completely new until Jesus comes again. So we're new, but not all the way right. new. And so we're a mixed bag of renewed heart and mind. And we now have the spirit and dwelling and sin. And it's at war. Um, so... And I think another thing that happens, so that's one, is sin. Two, is a misunderstanding of power and authority. Mm. They're not the same thing. And, you know, church leaders have an authority in the church, just like parents have authority with children. It's an authority for the good and flourishing of the child and their discipline and discipleship. Discipleship and discipline doesn't mean spanking, which I'm against, so... <laughs> But like just disciplining and, and giving discipline means all the good stuff, the encouraging and supporting and addressing bad behaviors is it's really narrow mm -hmm, thing of mm -hmm. discipline. And so the way authority gets understood in authority and power, um, it's a misuse of authority and a misuse of power sometimes. Yeah. Uh, part of what's happening in the church also is, um, uh, is chauvinism and misogyny. Because um, we basically have people have taken Bible verses and said, yeah, all women need to be subjected to all men, some type of misogynistic, chauvinistic thing. And this is not about ordination and, and all that kind of stuff. There are some very, there are complementarians who believe that, you know, only men should be pastors and they're not chauvinists. I'm not saying complementarianism right, is chauvinism. Right, right, right. Yeah. Some of them are. And I could give you names. I think we all know who those people are because they're kind of that bro Christian, you know, the pitifully macho, you know, I like red meat and sex guy. Um, and and then there's egalitarians who believe that a woman could be ordained and serve as a pastor. And so I'm I'm not I'm not using those. I'm, there are there are, there's misogyny and chauvinism in both camps. Um, but what ends up happening is. If you kind of take this kind of misogynistic, chauvinistic thing and give it a Bible verse and a divine stamp of approval, that doesn't help at all. And also, the role of pastor is to lead a group of people. And people who feel called to lead a group of people, one thing that you need to pay attention to is their motive. Um, some people get involved in that because they're narcissists or narcissistic. There's a diagnosis and then there's a characteristic. Um and some might kind of not realize that temptation until they're in there. And so just being aware of that type of role. I mean, I think it takes a lot of guts to say, I want to be a shepherd and serve. I mean, you're trying to lead a volunteer group of people. They're not your staff. About spiritual things, about which everyone has a deep investment in. There's lots of conflict possibilities. How do you engage the culture, each other? I mean, it's not an easy thing. That's why... Um, you know, the Drucker, Drucker, the the management guru said that being a pastor is one of the four hardest jobs at uh, being a CEO of a hospital, a president of the United States and a CEO of a company. I, no, no, uh, a university president and hospital and pastor. It's one of the four hardest jobs of leadership. 
So, but that comes at a price sometimes, and that's why Chuck DeGroat's book, Nar- When Narcissism Comes to Church, is so important. Um, so those are some of the issues. And then some of the things that common traits, uh, what we found is that uh, fundamentalistic, fundamentalistic churches are the worst at abuse, uh, perpetrating abuse and covering up abuse. Um, it's, it's, a, it's the way they engage with authority and power. Um, other common traits are, um, you know, the mission of the church trumps over exactly what you said, the individual. Um, you know, well, what are, we don't want to mess up the reputation of Jesus or the reputation of our church. It's, a, it's an organizational self-absorption. Right. Organizations, institutions default to defending the institution at the expense of the individual. Right. Um, that's not how uh, the church is talked about in the Bible at all. So those are, uh, some of them are, the other one that's a new one is um, the, and I'm a, I'm a, I've been hearing a lot more is like, we, we don't want to do the victim mentality thing. Um, I don't want to do victim mentality. I look at my daughters all the time and I'm like, hey, no, 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 don't talk like a victim. Like, you're responsible for this. Like, the reason that person responded to you, like, I'm always talking about that. But to use that as like a dismissal, like, oh, I'm, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. Or, or we're just, we're, we're encouraging people and we're doing sinful empathy. Like, that's a whole new thing is, you know, sinful empathy. And like, that's not the problem of the church. Sinful empathy is not the problem. Right. Um, and so there's a little cultural warfare thing going yeah. on that people are picking up on and, and they're, they're, they're doing cultural engagement, but not uh, theology in ministry talk as much yeah. as they are a political discourse. Is there something, thank you for sharing all of that, by the way, there are so many layers there that could be unpacked. Um, but like, I'm wondering, you mes- you mentioned um, narcissistic leaders and motives and um, like, for example, something that I I've seen is often in these situations, there tends to be a lack of accountability, right? There is not real accountability for that leader or there's an amen corner or, you know, um, and that just kind of leads to everything else. And so have you noticed like qualities of a leader um, or things that a church does or doesn't typically have in place that is common in these situations? Yes, uh, accountability is a huge one, or or uh, second second policies for uh, the head honchos that don't count for everybody else. So some type of like tiered system where he's. You know, this is what happened with Ravi Zacharias. Let's just go ahead and name names at this point. And everyone was defending him early on. I had friends who are connected deeply to the ministry who said, "No, he lived above reproach. He would always hand over his cell phone to everyone. He had all these eyes of accountability." We find out. That wasn't true at all. They had that was the policy for everyone else, but he couldn't be bothered by it. He was so trusted that you know. Now we found out how many people he was raping um, overseas and how young they were. I mean, it's staggering. So accountability is one. Um, arrogance. Uh, I mean, one, if you look at what are the qualities for an elder, look at Timothy and Titus. I mean, Paul's letters to First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, humility and and repent. I mean, the, this is Martin Luther's very first theses of the 95 theses that he nailed to the Wittenberg door. The Christian life is one of repentance. Now, what we don't need is some type of oversharing, narcissistic, look at me, how repentant I am, and they're always doing. 
but a healthy, not oversharing. Don't bleed all over everyone in your repentance from the, like, repent personally. Don't repent from the pulpit unless you sin from the pulpit, which some people need to do. But um, do they repent? And are they, no, do, do people go, yeah, that pastor, can I tell you something? He, he took me out to lunch to apologize to me because of the way he, what he sent in the text. I have a colleague, what he's known for, like, he, he, he's very, he's opinionated. And I really like this this guy for that. Yeah. And on two occasions in the past few years, uh, he had to drive hours away to apologize to a colleague. He took a whole day because he had to drive two hours one way, meet with him, and then drive two hours back home. And I said, what was that all about? And he's like, well, I talked about that person. I, th- I felt like I sinned against that person by using my words with someone else. So I wanted to repent in the same mode that I sinned. Wow. Grief. So the, I know that guy as a humble, repentant man. He's opinionated and he's a dynamic personality, yeah. but he's humble and repentant. Is, is that a characteristic? The other is some, some places, um, some churches have this kind of um, naive is the best word I can think of right now. There's a better word for it, but they, they start looking at abuse and they go, well, that's not in our church. I've heard that a lot when I, when I tell like, the numbers on abuse is one out of four women and one out of six men are or will be survivors of sexual abuse in their lifetime. One out of six and one out of tw- one out of six women and one out of twenty men will experience intimate partner abuse in their lifetime. At the very least, that one out of twenty is probably a lot worse than one out of twenty. Um, but when you start bringing it out to churches, they go, "That's not an issue in in our church." And what usually happens is what they mean by that is. The socioeconomic, they think, oh, well, we're well off, and the kind of people that come to our church, that's not their issue. They're they're worried about they're, they're more worried about the idolatry of money or success. And I'm like, that's not the case. It's it's across all socioeconomic, racial, linguistic, cultural, ethnic lines. And so there's a naivete in assuming that that's for some other group who are dealing with that. And they don't realize it's right there in the church. So there's a there's a lack of basic pastoral reflectiveness that's at play also. I was going to say, yeah, if you're not talking about it, then why would anyone feel like they're safe to open up about it? Because just by simply omitting the discussion, omitting the topic, it creates this culture that, oh, this is not something that we really talk about or touch on. So then those who are struggling or suffering may not bring it up. You know, um, so, so absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, you know, uh, looking for humility, looking for repentance, change in posture, looking for actual accountability where the things that apply for everyone else also apply for that leader and, and having that accountability and, um, those consequences in place, um, for what the last one is just taking it seriously. Having a policy and be like, hey, we need to address this. It needs to come from the top, yeah. whatever the leadership structure is, just taking it seriously mm-hmm. in whatever that could be as a blanket category. Yeah, it's like, do you have a policy? I mean, for me, it's the same thing with mental health. It's just like, do you have a policy? Like, this, not it's not this ambiguous, like, when we hear about abuse, we pray with, we would, we'll pray with them or, you know, what I have you. Like, what is the actual policy that's in place that when this happens, no matter who's doing it, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a leader, whether it's a volunteer, this is the policy that we have in place to make sure our churches are safe and protected. Um, and, and I know that's some of the work that you do with Grace, and we're definitely going to get to that. And so leading into that... Um, 
you talk a lot about, you know, uh, again, abuse and biblical studies. That's your background. And so what are some ways to look out for where common, where it's common in these situations that scripture gets mishandled and misused when churches respond to abuse? I guess it's a two-part question. So it's like, how is scripture typically mishandled in abuse situations? And what would be the proper use and application of scripture that would help foster healing and accountability in these situations? Love it. So uh, I'm going to try to not go heavy on the first side. And so just remind me on the second part of that question. There are three major categories for the misuse of scripture that I that I can think of off the top of my head. One is scripture is used to justify abusive behavior. Um, I did that. You know, I abuse because I'm the head of the house and that's authority and you didn't submit or I'm the father and you need to be disciplined because the Bible says I'm supposed to hit you with a rod. I mean, just um, um, or to minimize the abused. Uh, well, did you do Matthew 18? Like, what were you wearing? Did you, What did you say that made him respond like that? So justifying abusive behavior, minimizing the abused person, and then criticizing how the abused feel about abuse and how they responded to the abuse. Like, like if, if a person's abused, they might say something to someone else. And they the, the criticism is, well, you know, you're not supposed to gossip, right? You're supposed to go to the authority of the church. You have to go to that person first and then go to the church and then maybe you can go to the police. So there's a misuse of control. So justifying abusive behavior, minimizing the abused, and then criticizing how the abused or those that support them have responded. Yeah. There, let me give you some Bible. Those are the three ways. Let me give you some key Bible verses yeah. that come to mind. First um, Corinthians 7 is a classic one about your bodies are each other's. I've seen meat-headed pastors, like the pastoral malpractice to joke about 1 Corinthians 7 is my favorite verse because it tells my wife that her body's mine and my body's hers. Like to joke about something that is such a touch point for pain and vulnerability is foolish. Um, so 1 Corinthians 7 is frequently misused. Malachi 2, where it says God hates abuse or hates divorce. Um, I've heard that one used a lot. There was one pastor in Virginia where, where my wife and I, when we got first got married and where I was teaching and she was a, a case manager, there was a, one church from which many women came to the domestic violence shelter. And they would all tell the same story. They talked to their pastor and their pastor said to them, God hates divorce. That's usually the first thing a meat-headed, foolish pastor will end up saying to an abused woman. Um, and then he's, this is his famous line, Jesus's wounds were used to heal the fracture in his relationship with us. Your wounds can be used to heal the fractured relationship in your marriage. How about we go to marriage counseling? Yeah. Domestic abuse is not a marriage counseling situation, no. but to, to spiritualize the abuse as if putting her in a... Like she needs to hear the words from Jesus, not be given a Messiah complex. It's like saying when, like you need to set an example for your husband uh -huh. in order for him to change. Like that's the scripture it made me think of. Yep, that's yeah. it. And when, when Malachi says God hates abuse, he's saying, I hate the man who misuses the certificate of divorce. So God hates divorce. He does. He hates it when the man abandons the woman and gives her a certificate of divorce. So this complete... What's ironic is all the places that are so intense on the internet twist it so much mm -hmm. to cover up. 
Another one that's famous is um, Ephesians 5, 2 and Colossians 3, 18, which is basically wives submit to your husbands. Uh, they forget to look at the mutual submission right before it. Uh, submit to one another as reverence to Christ, verse 21. And then to actually contextualize that, my wife and girls read this passage. Um, my, my girls go to a classical Christian school and some of the uh, their classmates uh, like to talk about these things because this is what they hear from home and church sometimes. Um, and so the girls were like, what is this whole husband, like wives submit to husbands? I'm like, well, usually <laughs> submit. Hus- it says wives submit to husbands. And it says husbands lay down your life for your wife. I'm like, which one sounds better to you? Um, and they're like, oh. Okay, submitting versus lay down my life. And again, I'm not minimizing the call to women. I don't think Paul wrote that because he didn't think women were capable of it. But I think Paul was just using two different images for what mutual submission looks like. Mutual submission, yep. Those those are some of the passages. There's more, but it goes back to the three three reasons, to to minimize, to justify, and to criticize. I feel perfect just hearing those. (laughs) So, yeah. So now on the healthy side, what should be done is what does God think about abuse? Mm -hmm. Um, God God seems to hate divorce, uh, the misuse of the man divorcing the woman unnecessarily because he's abandoning her. Um, And likewise for women that just abandon their spouse with non-abuse, he doesn't like that either. But thousands of times he says, I hate abuse. I hate violence. I'm on the side of the abused. I'm against the perpetrator of violence. And so what does God think about the abuse? What does God think about the abused? And what God thinks about the abused is the person who, this is Zechariah, I think, 2.8, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. The language there is whoever harmfully touches you, whoever plunders you is the actual Hebrew. Mm. Whoever harmfully touches you, it's like they're harmfully touching the apple of my eye, the most vulnerable part of a body, if God were to have a body. So you have deep compassion, you have deep empathy, and so God's disposition to abuse is yeah. wrath. God's disposition to the abused is compassion, patience, hope, and healing. And then the message of Scripture, it, I think the message, the deepest message of Scripture is the mercy and grace of God to sinners and sinned against. And if that's the thread we're pulling out, are are we talking about the unconditional love of God because of the personal work of Jesus Christ? Or are we giving people a list of advice and commandments to follow without the hope of forgiveness and hope and healing? And how they talk about sin. The Bible talks about sin holistically. There's a cosmically something has happened uh, organizationally things have happened, individually things have happened. Sin is prevalent throughout all of creation. It's not as bad as it could be, but sin has distorted everything. And so we have to talk about being sinners and being sinned against. The gospel of Jesus Christ addresses both. It's, my problem is not just a guilt problem, but it's also a healing and shame problem for the ways I've been sinned against. And having a full orb understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, if that's not being, if that's not the, that, that's the thread of Scripture. It's Christocentric. If we're missing that to turn it into either um, a list of commandments, 
and that's all it is, or a, a good advice book, we're, we're already twisting scripture for the purposes that it's not even given for. Right, right. Amen to that. You know, um, just going back to the whole God cares for the individual. Like, it's something I just want to shout from the rooftops. He cares about not, I think there's been so much emphasis on the institution of things. Like, you know, God cares about the institution of marriage. God cares about the institution of church, which he does care about these things. But I have an issue where it's like, Okay, but then where does the individual fall into that? You know, because a lot of times I'm seeing it where the institution is placed above the individual when, like you said, there's so much scripture about God's compassion for the uh, individual and um, the abused and for justice. And he doesn't, he also cares about the person in the marriage. He also cares about the person in the church who is going through those things. So this whole idea of, it's something that I see a lot that I think is a form of gaslighting is using unity as a form of gaslighting, which is this idea of, no, we need to maintain the unity of marriage and the image of marriage. We need to maintain the unity of the church and the image of church, which I agree with, but at the same time, not at the cost of the individual, because then we're not living in truth or honesty or ultimately acting out God's heart. Um, that's what I take issue with. <laughs> Bible verses for this. I mean, that's the thing is, if you look at the Paul and Peter and the writer to the Hebrews and James and Jude, like all throughout the New Testament, it says Christ died, historical, you know, point, Christ died and rose again for you. Like it's all throughout Romans and Peter, it's all throughout scripture. Christ died for you. Uh, for sin, for your redemption, for your forgiveness. And then at the same time, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, it's a body of Christ with parts that are talking to it. You don't have to pick. We're not, the Bible doesn't make us pick between, because we don't want to be radical individualists. I mean, that's why Hebrews said, hey, don't forsake getting together with each other. Like, this is actually important. Something happens when you're together around the word of God and communion and, and the sacraments. Uh, but you don't have to pick between the parts of the body and the body. Like it, that's, Paul's going, it's ridiculous for one part to say to the other part, we don't need you or I'm not worthy. I mean, there's that conversation is, is two conversations happening in 1 Corinthians 12 because you're part of one body. So for people that go radically individualist, like, what are you thinking? That's not how Jesus talks. I mean, it's the body of Christ. And for those that don't even pay attention to the individual, they're missing a whole bunch of individual personal pronouns <laughs> for Christ died for you um, and specific parts of the body that are needed for the whole to actually work well together. Absolutely. Yes. Amen. And speaking to parts of the body and kind of everyone having a different place in the body, um, I know that you serve on the board of grace. Like you mentioned earlier, it's a godly response to abuse in Christian environments. You guys have a mission specifically around helping Christian, uh, just equip Christian communities to recognize, prevent, and respond to abuse. And I'm so glad that there is a specific space in the body. Um, there's a specific part of the body, as you're mentioning, that um, plays this role for the sake of the body. And so um, can you tell us a little bit more about how grace uh, helps prevent abuse in the church or what things you guys are doing practically um, and just how we can 
be better at equipping our churches to be protected from abuse. Yeah. Well, in in your question, you put the three uh, three things in there: how to recognize, prevent, and respond to abuse. That's the key. So on the <clears throat> on all of those, I mean, some of the ways we do that's what we do. How we do that is. We have a certification program where we actually have people going in and doing training with churches, denominations. Um, here in Orlando, I've brought a few churches together to do this. One Presbyterian, one Episcopalian, and one Lutheran all get together and kind of pay for the training together. And so doing a certification that goes through how does abuse work? What are some of the patterns? What are the policies? What's the way to respond? Uh, and it needs to be from the top. If, if the senior pastor and the senior leadership isn't involved, they don't do it because it'll just be undermined. So it's a little appropriate pressure to the senior leaders. So there's certification, which is very important in updating on that. And, and then we do, uh, they do policy reviews. They'll, they'll help create policies. They'll look at policies. They'll be a consultant to help think through particular instances. So what frequently happens is we'll do certifications. Sometimes people will call in and say, what do we do now? Like what's, what's, what's the possible step? That's more of a consulting role. We've, we we're working on creating courses and we've done a few um, uh, resources online conferences. We've done some of those. Uh, there was one a while ago called the valued conference and it was Boz Chavijan, my wife and I and Rachel Den Hollander and uh, um, Mary DeMuth and a few others got together in California. Uh, that was partly from grace being involved. And the other part is independent investigations. Um, that's very important is walking in transparency. So usually a church or organization um, will have some accusations and a group of survivors will say, um, you're not responding well. They'll call for an independent investigation and then we'll do the investigation. We'll make the, make the investigation public. That's part of our policy. We'll give it to the survivors. We'll give it to the institution for a few days, let them look at it. And then independent investigations is another way of doing that. Um, and then, and then there's more of the awareness thing it, it, that's helpful is just being a part of the conversation, you know, board members like myself, and then the staff who are spectacular, um, being out there and being involved as much as possible. So those are the main ways that we're involved. And Grace is one of the most important things that I do. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm busy with a few things, but I always make time for the ministry of Grace because it's, it's so important and they yeah. do it so well. I'm so encouraged by what you guys are doing. And I actually have Grace listed as a resource on my website for those experiencing spiritual abuse or just because a lot of times when you're in those situations, you're just like, is it just me? You know, um, you know, your, your experience could be gaslit or it's just like, is this something that I should pursue? You know, especially if you think it's just you going through it. Is it just in my head? Am I just being rebellious? And do I just not want to be discipled? Or, you know, whatever it is, you know. Um, maybe you've been told you have a rebellious spirit. You know, that happens a lot. Jezebel spirit. Jezebel spirit, Jezebel. you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And classic. And, um, and it can be kind of scary a little bit. And so I love that you guys have these independent investigations as well, because sometimes victims do not want to come forward because it seems so much bigger than them. And so to know that they have this support of, uh, and, and it's formalized too. It's not just like, Hey, we're going to go ruffle some feathers. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's formalized. You guys have thought this out. And so on that note, just kind of in closing here, 
Um, you know, I may, I have some listeners who went through, um, sorry, I think my sound is doing the white noise again. Um, Tony, we're just going to edit here really quickly. I'm going to ask the questions. I want to see what happens if I, if you mute while I ask if my noise goes down. It did. Oh my gosh. It disappeared. What is, I'm going to have to figure this out later. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask the question and then I'll mute myself and then let you talk. Okay. And I'll do the same thing because I, th I think the white noise loop yeah. is getting from my speaker to yours and back So end. strange. So I'm going to have to figure learn. this out. And I'll, I'll turn it on when I answer. Okay, cool. Okay, Tony, we are going to pick up right here. So, you know, I have some listeners who maybe went through a painful or traumatic experience in a church setting where they let their guard down, they were vulnerable, they trusted leadership, and now they have adverse feelings about the church or just are really hesitant about opening themselves up back to a faith community. Um, what encouragement might you have for that person um, who is wondering like what they should do. I mean, I know this is kind of a loaded question for some of them. They're like, the church is, you know, they're bad mouthing me, you know, ever since I left or um, what do I do? You know, where do I go? Do I address it myself? Do I go directly to the leader? Do I just let it go and leave? Um, what encouragement might you have for someone who is going through that or is trying to come out of that and maybe what they should do about the situation um, and any hope for any faith lost in this situation. Yeah. First, uh, that response makes a lot of sense. So that's the first encouragement is it's not because you're spiritually deficient. It's because that's a normal response to being mistreated, abused, lied about. Spiritual abuse is to not trust the people who violated. Yeah. So that's a normal response. That's a typical, that's a healthy response. That's the way God made you emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically. It's all playing together. That's the response is to kind of pull back and recoil a little bit and protect. Yeah. Um, that's one. Two, God cares. He cares more than you do about that. And I don't, not to minimize how much you care, is to maximize how much he cares. We don't need to deny or minimize because God knows and he sees and he hears. This is he, he hears the prayers of his people. He sees what's taking place. And so we're invited to participate in God's concern and grief over what happened to you. So he's already grieving the mistreatment and abuse that you experienced. He's inviting you to join him in his sorrow about what you experienced. In addition to that, he not only has sorrow and grieves to which you're invited, he also is angry. His response to when this happens is anger. Now, the good news is that God does his anger perfectly, and we do ours well and sometimes sinfully. We, we turn our anger into vengeance, and Romans says, vengeance is mine. Well, the good news there is we're off the hamster wheel of revenge because vengeance is his. The good news is, He's not saying vengeance isn't happening. He's saying vengeance is mine. <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's an invitation to hand things over and be like, okay, God, you're, you're holy and angry. And Ephesians 4.32 says, it, to 5.2 says, be angry. In your anger, don't sin. And so we're actually commanded and invited to be angry, just not to be angry sinfully. So we can be sorrowful for what happened to us. We can be angry for what happened to us, and we can be hopeful because God's in the business 
of healing. That's, he's, Jesus is making all things new. Uh, that's what the person and work of Jesus is for. He's bestowing to you a new identity. He's bestowing to you forgiveness for when you have sinned. He's He's, he's giving you a solution for shame. He, he robes you in his righteousness. He cleans you, and he includes you in as the adopted child of God. And he, Jesus also rose again from the dead. There's life after death. He's in the business of punching holes in the darkness. That's what the whole gospel message is. So God cares so we can join him in sorrow. He's angry so we can join him in anger. And God is uh, involved in healing, and so we can have hope that he has something. Now, what does this mean for church practically is <clears throat> a lot of people, a lot of the people that I've met who have experienced abuse in a church context um, is, is very interesting because many of them do not go to church because, but they cling very closely to Jesus. They have yeah. a very vibrant, and passionate faith in Christ, yeah. but the institution is scary for them. I've seen that. And so they're, they're navigating Yeah. That. And so... So I would say, uh, talk, find some, make community happen. It doesn't need to be an enormous church. It doesn't need to be, uh, I'm fine. I don't, I don't want to moralize church size. It doesn't need to be, I'm not against mega church. And I'm not against like a really small, like 20 person church. Maybe find a healthier community where you're focused on word and sacrament, but there's, it's a home church setting where you have a pastor, you have something. It doesn't need to be Sunday morning, hour and a half. This is what we do. We have a kid's program. So see if there's a place that would, because that's good for you. You don't you don't need to go to the church where you were mistreated. Um, I wouldn't recommend that because if you can't trust them, um, uh, you shouldn't restore that relationship. Uh, how, how you leave a church that mistreats depends on the experience. Um, how you might find another church to go to. As a, as a pastor, as a minister, I want people in church, but I want them in healthy churches. Amen. I can give you good news. There are wonderful. I've had so many. The church where I go, mm-hmm. where, we have 85 churches in the diocese, but the church that I go to is called the Cathedral Church of St. Luke. Um, there are three on-staff uh, priests mm-hmm. and two deacons who are not, not on staff and they're not paid. One of them's a therapist. He, he went to seminary and he's not a therapist. The other one is a New Testament professor. And so uh, there are numerous people who I know of in this community from Orlando who have experienced abuse. They go to the church and they said, man, I was abused by a man in a collar 30 years ago. The last thing I want to do is put myself in a spiritual setting with a man with a collar around his neck. But being in a healthy church with men with collars around their neck who respect me, who say, um, I'm so glad to see you here. Can I give you a hug? And give them like a, like, who are respectful about touch and words and interacting. One of the most damaging things that these people have experienced from religious leaders was the abuse and mistreatment. The very thing that was the point of the most devastating thing in their life, clergy person, is ironically the tool that God uses for the healing of that pain. Now, again, God uses other things, but you're also at church, you're in the place where if you're in a healthy church Mm -hmm. and and the gospel's being proclaimed, 
that's that's what we need. That's what we all need. So I just say maybe consider that it's not a church problem. Maybe it's a church not acting like a church or acting like a synagogue of Satan, to use some of Jesus's terms. Um, um, or they're an unhealthy church, but a healthy church is a great gift. And God's patient. Like, don't make this a pressure thing. Like, well, you're a pitiful Christian because you're not getting to church. This is an invitation. Start looking for, okay, maybe I need to differentiate between unhealthy and healthy churches. And then, you know, go gently. Be kind to yourself because you're going to be activated or triggered by a church setting. That's a normal response. Ask around and see where are some churches that are healthy that that other people would talk about. Um, Start looking at online stuff and seeing if that's a place that you would you know, trust yourself and encourage yourself to go. I start just dabbling. And so find a way because it's like, it's like telling people, Hey, drinking water is good for you. You might not want to drink water, but it's good for you. Same thing with church. Like this is what God, this is God's main tool for your goodness. And it's the group of people that are there to be a community, to encourage you to worship God and, and be a part of that body of Christ. And so it's a great benefit, but I, I don't want to minimize how painful that can be for so many people. Yeah, it's nuanced. And, you know, I love what you're speaking to, what we call a corrective emotional experience in the psychology world, you know, which is, like you said, it's experiencing that in a new way. It restores it in your brain in a new way, in a safe space to where um, it, it really becomes a healing experience in mind, body, and soul. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah. The great thing about being online now too is that churches have like their sermons posted online. They have their mission statements and all these things online. So now you can actually look into a space more than you probably ever could before. You could see what they're preaching about, if it aligns, what they're about, you know, visit it and and just do your search. And like you said, be gentle with yourself and don't shame yourself with things like, oh, you need to be rooted. You can't be church hopping. You need to stay planted. Like, no, you are allowed a safe process to make sure that you're in a safe space. So thank you so much for your time. I know there is so much that we can talk about. You guys, I will have all of the links in the show notes for for Grace, for for, uh, Justin's books, um, all the things. And this is one of many conversations that we are going to continue on the theme of um, healing from spiritual abuse because it happens and we want to talk about it. So um, Justin, where can those who are listening and want to continue in the work that you're doing and following along, where can they follow you and stay connected? Yeah. Um, I'm on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's Justin Holcomb, at Justin Holcomb. I was an early adopter. I got the first Justin Holcombs there are. And then justinholcomb.com is the website where I have blogs about this stuff. Uh, so many things. Justinholcomb.com is where, where uh, all, everything comes together is compiled. We have I actually have connections to some of the things we talked about, the Valued Conference and some some other audio and video and resource. Amazing. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and for sharing it here with us. You guys, thanks for tuning in. Leave us some comments or let us know in the, you know, in the reviews, if you enjoyed this episode, if there's anything you've learned, uh, we appreciate you so much. So thanks for listening until next time.